Gentlemen, welcome to another Palm Wine Central podcast episode. I'm one of your hosts, Uncle AK. Man, with me, man, I got my good peoples. Baba, this was good with you, bro. What's up, everybody? Happy Wednesday. It's good to be back home again. Excited about this one. We got a very special guest in the building. Uncle AK did it again. Uncle AK. What's up, everybody? Yeah, so I'm just trying to beat Tyrant's record, you know what I mean? So shout out to shout out to Tyrant Tyrant, man. Shove T, man. I'm just trying to, I'm trying to beat his record, dog. I'm like, ain't no way. <laughs> you know, he's going, he's going to finish 2023 strong and I'm not going to come in strong in 2024, bro. So, you know, I mean, I'm just trying to be like Tayo, man. So shout out to him. Well, Fada, you guys are doing AJ versus Ngannou already. <laughs> <laughs> hey, man, listen, the, 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 the good part is he's going to lose. <laughs> you know, but that's I, a good part. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> In devastating fashion, too. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. You know, I mean, you've seen that. Wait, don't get into that. Let's introduce, you know, uh, Boss Lady T. What's good with you? Hi. I'm good. How's everyone's Wednesday? It is Wednesday. Yeah, happy home day, man. Some of us have so much snow, we forget what day it is. Ha <laughs> ha. <laughs> Very funny. <laughs> so it's your turn. When I'm cooking over here in the next three months, I'll be cooking in three three-digit degree weather, you'll be chilling, so. See, the difference here is, mm. in that weather, you could still go outside, right? And hop in the car <laughs> and drive wherever you gotta drive to. The only thing you have to worry about is the heat. But the roads are clear. You don't have to worry about crazy drivers like that. None of that stuff. I'm talking about, we're driving on a sheet of ice, right? <laughs> the least thing you do, you're in a ditch. And then it's below, like today was when I got up in the morning was three degrees outside. Jesus is Lord. You know what I'm saying? So I don't know if there's a correlation there, but I mean there is. There's pros and cons to other things, right? You know, so and just you know, in case just if there's any consolation, when it comes to the driving in Texas, we don't need no sheets of snow. You know, they just crazy on their own. <laughs> so there's that yeah 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 but come and see folks driving like you know they don't even see ice or snow they just zoom past you like zoom like <laughs> i don't know where these folks think they're going but i don't think i'm in that kind of rush you know what <laughs> i mean so i just take my time to 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 to, to get home but um we have a very special guest like as they said before that this episode is sponsored by SITM Podcast. Go follow them on all streaming and social platforms. SITM Podcast, as uniform. And while you're at it, follow us, Palmwine Central Podcast, on all streaming platforms and on all social platforms. That is um, at PWC Cast. Follow us there. Um, review, like, share the content. You know, with everybody, man. Why not? But yo, listen, man. You might have seen them stuck in the middle. Or around your neighborhood in the DMV, you know. Um, um, I wanted to say protest. That's not the word I was trying to use. <laughs> um, campaigning. There you go. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> You're right, around the neighborhood, you know, campaigning on your TV screens, man. You know what I mean? Um, this is a very, very 
Um, this is going to be a very, very different episode from what you guys normally hear. I don't know if at some point we're going to go crazy like we normally, but we're going to try to keep it political, you know what I mean, around this man's neighborhood so we can capture as much as we can from him for you. Um, it's none other than Fitzgerald Mufo. He's the um, candidate running for um, the Board of Education for MCPS. Welcome to the platform, bro. How you Thank doing? You. Thank you guys. Thank you so much for having me again. I truly appreciate the opportunity uh, for you to allow me to disseminate my message and inviting me here on your platforms. I thank you. I'm extremely humbled and I'm excited to also meet your guests or I'll say your showmates too as well. And this guy started, take it easy. What's disseminate? Hey, no, just... <laughs> <laughs> Well, I guess we're lucky that JB's not on here too. Hey, because he would be the clutch of the Titan. Listen. Hey, I don't know. He picked the he picked the wrong episode to have internet problems, but <laughs> but now nah, um welcome to the platform. Yeah, man. Um it's my fellow co-host, you know, the other one sitting there by myself, my coconut head. This one, you know, you have all these different coconuts that you know have Different flavors of water. But anyways, <laughs> um, who is Fitzgerald before, man, for those who haven't watched the episode and who don't know anything about you? Yes. What can you tell them? I, I will tell them that Fitzgerald Mofor is someone who's very enthused by uh, community engagement, civic engagement, someone who's really rooted in uh, proliferating a uh, broader or greater society for the youth moving forward. And over the last years, um, I consider myself somewhat of a politics enjoyer, not even just my race only. I really like observing other races nationally, as we're seeing right now, the primaries, where there's uh, the GOP primary. Uh, the Democrats aren't really necessarily are running the primary this presidential election cycle, but all things politics, government, polit political science, philosophy, political theory, those are things that I'm extremely consumed um, and enthused by. So I would consider myself a, still a student too as well and someone who's always on a path of intellectual curiosity. That's who I, That's how I characterize myself, so to speak. Let me bring this around, you know, around as this ball court real quick. You know what I mean? Uh, Ex-football player, <laughs> right? Um, division, is it one? Yes, division. Yeah, division one. Um, you know what I mean? Left that, went to law school left that, got into politics. I mean, I'm just saying like different paths, you know what I mean, lead to different things in a sense. To some people that might not understand why, you know, you left football for politics or why did you just keep going, right, and go different paths, got into politics, went to law school, you know what I mean, left yes. become so, a respecter, for example, you know what I mean, big time lawyer, you know what I mean? So why politics, man, why politics? You no, know, because to me, the fastest way to actually put for real change in a society is through policy and legislation and laws. And the politicians are essentially the lawmakers and they mold a society for the better or the worse. Uh, and, you know, I really did learn that during my time after uh, completing my, my football career. And, you know, me just be very candid and frank. For the first year, six months or a year or so, when my football career concluded, I was totally lost. I had no idea what it is exactly 
what I wanted to do. I mean, for the last 10 years prior, I completely dedicated my life and all my energy towards football, being the best athlete I possibly can be. And, and then this was also during the pandemic too, as well. So I had a lot of time to reflect and think about what are the next things for me moving forward. And, uh, I'll, I'll go back to and just give you additional context. So right after my football career, my senior year, we had a really good, I had a really good career. I played, I started 35 games. We won the first championship in school history, broke a multitude of other school records. And in 2019 was my last year. In 2020, the pandemic essentially hit. And from March of 2020 until August, you know, I was virtually a couch potato, really didn't get much done. And for a good reason, the world was essentially closed down. And during that time, going through my maturation process, I was able to find out and figure out different things that, I, that I'm interested in. And one thing I also would tell people is that, and you, as you may know, AK, is, this is something that's somewhat, it's like, it's traditional. It's dynasty, somewhat in the family, you know father practiced law, did so much of politics too as well. And our grandfather was a politician and it was a very integral cog in terms of the unification of the Anglophone speaking side of Cameroon and the Francophone speaking side of Cameroon. So I don't really want to get too much into politics of that because I know that can be extremely contentious and extremely divisive, but that's essentially where, you know, my background comes from and where that fervor in politics and political science for that matter. So essentially, I think it comes in the blood. So during that time, post-pandemic, sitting home, doing as much research, and to a certain extent, politics is pop culture. It's part of, it's part of pop culture. It's in the mainstream of dialogue, especially during presidential cycles, which 2020 was. So finished that year of football, figured out, hey, maybe uh, this is something I might want to dive into and I think I can make a real impact here. But before I com completely committed, I went to teach in this very poor and an impoverished community in uh, Mobile, Alabama, which is a very, very uh, populated community with African-Americans, descendants of slaves, unfortunately. And a lot of them just don't have the opportunity to have access to a very robust and broad education which I think is a big attribution to their perpetual state of destitution. So I, I just quickly realized, you know, if there is a policymaker that can come in when elected in office and be able to provide educational reforms in this specific jurisdiction, a lot of these kids will probably have a much better trajectory in terms of economic viability. So that's sort of kind of how I really got into it and then came home. And as we talked about last time with, campaign managing, which we saw a lot of electoral uh, victories too, and just in that one cycle, all up and down the ticket, um, and then working in the Maryland legislature, and then actually running our own campaign here. I'm assuming you went to school in Alabama? Yes. Isn't that the correlation between you teaching in Alabama? Yes. Yeah, so I, the school we went to, first I went to University of Alabama in Birmingham, okay. which was like, a, was like an offshoot campus of University of Alabama, Tuscaloosa. Mm -hmm. And UAB is probably one of the better academic schools in the state. And it has a well-renowned medical facility and department. You have a lot of international students, Nigerians, Indians, Asians, that come and they participate in the medicine field and the hospital field and become doctors eventually. 
actually a lot of the players from Alabama actually flew out to UAB to perform or undergo uh, certain procedures from the surgeries that they had to endure. So UAB is a great school for medicine, hospitals, doctors, PT, those type of things. And I remember I, I told everyone, I was like, okay, I want to, I want to um, major in kinesiology. I want to major in physical therapy because I always told myself I wanted to be a coach. But little did I know that I would be sitting in a classroom shoulder to shoulder during lecture with eventual doctors. Mm. So that, <laughs> those weren't the conventional physical therapy or kinesiology classes that I was uh, intending on taking. So that was very hard during that process too as well. Very great school. And then I actually had the opportunity to go to Grove Hill. I, I talk about this impoverished rural community, but I need to be more specific. It's called Grove Hill and it's about two hours away from Mobile. And I had a friend of mine who was a graduate assistant at UAB and he was a, he was promoted to the defensive coordinator at this high school. And during the pandemic, he's like, hey Fitz, I'm gone. We have an opportunity here for you to be a defensive line coach and be a special education teacher, uh, uh, substitute teacher or in-school suspension teacher. Is that something you'd be interested in? And I said, absolutely. And I jumped on it. What year was that? This is 2020. Okay. 2020, August of 2020. Actually, during the height of the pandemic, weird times, you know, we had to check everyone's uh, temperature as they came into the school. We were wearing masks. The classrooms were artificially smaller. You know, we had to spread us, spread everyone out. You know, unfortunately, some kids were even doing virtual learning to make classes smaller as well. You know, we couldn't have more than 15 children during this time, you know, during the six feet spread. And actually, I remember I was under the guise as a substitute teacher, but there were times where I would teach for two to three months at a time because the main teachers would be out for COVID or uh, maybe one teacher, I think she had a, a child and she was out for an extended period of time too as well. And she had a couple run-ins with COVID. So very weird time for my first teaching experience. And when you speak to your intellectual curiosity, at what point did that curiosity kind of sway you towards politics? So when I kind of uh, unfortunately looked outside of myself in athletics and noticed that, and I hate to be so pessimistic or has such a peculiar outlook on African-American African -American community, but I see us at the bottom of the socioeconomic totem pole. I see the bottom in terms of our income, how much we earn, and just where we're slated in society in and of itself. And as I grew older and older going through that maturation process, I begin to think inward like, hey, man, why, why is that? You know, we can talk about uh, the transatlantic slave trade, 1492, when the conquistadors came or the Portuguese came uh, to the shores of Africa. We can talk about chattel slavery. We can talk about uh, post-reconstruction and how that failed. We can talk about redlining, digital marginalization. Uh, we could talk about Jim Crow, the mass incarceration, those type of things, right? And, uh, and to a certain extent, it's like, when are we going to move past that? When are we going to have leaders that are going to institute reforms or substantive pieces of legislation that will essentially counter-react those long semblances of marginalization and disenfranchisement? So every day I'm learning 
and I'm constantly looking at uh, new research articles, think tanks that do uh, uh, other research databases on you know what policies can be substantive or effectual for people that are in disenfranchised, uh, disenfranchised, marginalized communities. So that's what I mean in terms of intellectual curiosity. How can I continue to learn and expand my horizon? Those type of things. Interesting. So you just mentioned a lot of things historically that have played a huge role in mm -hmm. why we as a culture are where we are, right? So in terms of that, how far do you think we have bridged that gap? And how far do you think we are away from actually being competitive with other cultures? Now, the thing about it is we've made a lot of advancements, especially with the civil rights era. You know, we have our constitutional rights that have been affirmed through maybe the Civil Rights Act of 1964, some of other progressive policies instituted by LBJ and the civil rights movement as MLK and all other civil rights leaders. But unfortunately, we still have a lot more to go in terms of uh, Wealth inequality. I saw a statistic where in Boston, the average white American, in terms of their overall assets and what they're worth, on average, it may be about 200,000 and uh, black Americans in Boston are maybe at $800 in terms of our mm. wealth assets and what we actually have, you know, and mm. those things that we still have a lot of work to do there. Wealth inequality is crippling uh, inner cities where we're largely populated at, whether it's in Chicago or New York City or Baltimore or Washington, D.C. or Los Angeles or uh, St. Louis, Missouri, or even in the Deep South as well, whether it's Jackson, Mississippi, uh, Mobile, Alabama, uh, Little Rock, Arkansas. So the, these places where they're largely populated with African-Americans, but we're still far behind. And even in literacy numbers too, as well, we're far behind in, uh, in those metrics too, as well. So there are a lot of things that we have to do and have to get cleaned up, um, but it can't be done unilaterally. I think the best way is if we actually coalesce behind a leader that's serious about instituting reforms and legislation for our community specifically, and that's through the electoral process. And you know, I've talked to so many black people and they become so disillusioned and disenfranchised with the process. They're like, but Fitz, we turn out every presidential cycle and the status quo remains. We're still at the bottom. I say, you're right and your frustration is warranted. But I ask them, who's your mayor? Who are the members on your city council? Who's on your board of education? Uh, I, we all have local municipalities. Who who are the people that run the local municipalities? And a lot of us don't know. And that's not our fault. We have everyday lives and personal responsibilities that we have to take care of. But those policies and laws that they institute directly affect our lives much quicker than all the way at the top of the uh, federal presidential office. So we actually have to put real fidelity behind engaging in local politics so we can get real deliverables for our community. And I'm assuming that you think that the best course of action to bridge that gap is education. And that's why you chose education. certain, absolutely. And there are other mechanisms too as well, um, whether it's through economics, whether it's, uh, actually, I don't even have to make it even very nuanced. It's very basic, it's education and economic sustainability and viability, those two things will bridge that gap and actually help us move up the socioeconomic ladder. Um, it's easier said than done. And one thing that I think that's really crippling us 
especially in our community, is uh, governmental dependency. And that's something that we only see in our community. They're also actually white Americans lead the country in terms of governmental dependency, whether it's charity, Medicare, Medicaid, uh, welfare, SNAPs, vouchers, exactly. Yes, we know that white Americans, but per per capita, where we make 13% of the population. So just off of those statistics of the white Americans being at 60%, Mm -hmm. there's a high chance of them being much higher, but per capita, we largely rely on these uh, governmental uh, subsidies and we have to become more uh, self-sufficient in that matter. And that would be the quickest way to real liberation for blacks here in America. Do you think that it's um, attainable or naive that we would rely on a system that is designed for a subset of people that are the majority at the expense of our own prosperity? No, I, I don't think it's naive. I think the system was designed that way. A lot of African-Americans, they had they, they really didn't have another choice. Now, one of the best works, books I've ever read that I implore everyone to read is The Color of Law. Um, the Color of Law essentially speaks about the turn of the century, I believe from the 18th century and 1900s, through essentially explains how the Reconstruction era was a complete failure. And actually, when a lot of Blacks talk about uh, reparations, there's a lot of merit behind that conversation. Those aren't handouts. You have a field general, William Sherman, who was the general of the Union Army. This was a field order during this time. He said that all Blacks will be entitled to 40 acres and a mule. Now, this hasn't been enforced because the subsequent president after Abraham Lincoln, Andrew Johnson, who's someone completely capitulated to the white Dixiecrats in the South and completely capitulated to the white racists in the South and would not enforce these reforms for the African-American community. So the Reconstruction era was a complete failure in it, of its face. So you have redlining that essentially happening at all, white flight where banks will give loans to whites uh, and it would be a lot easier for them to acquire housing. And housing is one of the biggest levers to generational wealth, housing and assets that you could pass down to the next generation. So you would have banks that would help whites get housing through mortgages. And unfortunately, we're still seeing these same practices today. Well, Wells Fargo, uh, they're declining black eligible uh, appliers for loaners for the same practices of just institutional systemic racism. So you we, we had that going on in the 19th and this is all pretty much affirmed by the Supreme Court. I can't uh, stick my hand or point to specific uh, cases, which I should be able to, shame on me. But you have guys like Thurgood Marshall who fought, uh, argued ardently against these racist uh, Supreme Court rulings too as well. Uh, so not only do you have, you have the redlining, the digital marginalization, what else do we have in the turn of the century that essentially are practices of institutional racism with Blacks that continue to keep them at the bottom? So you have that for essentially 60 years, unfortunately, until the civil rights era. And actually, majority of us are still in the South now. Uh, Birmingham is like the Blackest city in America to this day, 60, 60% Black. And actually, so you uh, pretty much for the same, during that time, especially the civil rights era, there was a lot of Black fights fleeing to Chicago, New York City, 
queen, this, these oppressive orders uh, during the civil rights era, unfortunately, right? But essentially what I'm getting at is that we have to find ways to uh, rid ourselves or erode these practices. And someone say, so Fitz, what, what can we do? We have to hold the banks accountable. You have a situation where like Seneca Valley Bank that is last year went belly up. Well, I think they, all of their deposit depositors took the money out because they were afraid that we are on an economic downturn and billions and billions of dollars. And they got a couple billion dollars bailout from the FDIC. Um, and that's from the loosened regulations from Trump era too as well. But we would also like to see the United States government and Congress get very serious about regulating these banks and stopping them, not allowing them to continue to block qualified blank, uh, back, black uh, bank loaners from getting these loans to, to purchase these homes in terms of mortgages. So that's one way institutionally that we can fix with real strong leadership with Congress, et cetera, and so on. Okay. So if specific systems are put in place, right, and we've already outlined that there's a specific population of people that outnumber, right, our community, right? Let's go, let's nuance into education a little bit, right? Yeah. So what would that make education, right, a system, right? that is designed for specific people, right? That are the majority of the population, right? Wouldn't that make education indoctrination? That are the majority? No, not, not necessarily because here's the thing. If you look at Baltimore City, mm-hmm. Baltimore City is completely controlled by Blacks. Whether mm-hmm. it's the superintendent, whether it's the, uh, the council that appropriates the budget for, uh, for the Baltimore City schools, whether it's the mayor, uh, the office of these Baltimore city and a lot of these inner cities are controlled almost exclusively by blacks. So we can't say that it's the domineering society that has unabated or total control where they're indoctrinating their ideals within these small pockets. Now, I would say more largely speaking, more broadly speaking in the country at large, sure, we can have that conversation, but there are things that we can do ourselves unilaterally in these uh, local jurisdictions that can actually proliferate and promulgate actual change in our community. So, no, it's not indoctrination because it's controlled by predominantly white. I think if we had real engagement with our community and actually set our representatives who are serious about pushing change, we could see a lot of changes there too. What are some misconceptions then about, you know, um, local politics that you think we should be addressing? That, that it doesn't really deliver or yield any dividends or gains. I remember, actually, if you look right now on Gatesburg on their government page, they do live streams on well, the lawmakers and the legislators in that municipality. And on average, two people are viewing because they don't think it actually affects their lives directly. And it's and a lot of us have it kind of like backwards. We focus more so on Donald Trump, Joe Biden, presidential elections, and we don't focus on local municipalities there. So it's that's one of the biggest misconceptions I see with local politics is that there isn't any real direct effectual change on their life. Who controls the money and the budgets that go into these schools and uh, municipalities? So for us in Montgomery County, how it works is that you have the school superintendent. The school superintendent, they're going to request or propose their operating budget to the Board of Education. Okay. 
education, they have to approve that school superintendent's their request, and then it gets sent to the county council and the county executive. But the county executive does the same thing with the county council. He says, hey, county council, this is my operating budget. This is my capital budget. And then the uh, county council, they have, they have to approve uh, the county executives, his capital budget or his operating budget request, and they all vote on this. So once they go through that voting process and it finally gets approved, it's done until March, April, around that area. So, okay, for the next fiscal year, this is what we'll be working with. These are what our estimated expenditures, this is what our revenue, et cetera, those type of things. So it's a process between the Board of Education, school superintendent, county council, and county executive. And what are the metrics specifically that they use to determine how much they're actually going to award? Is it the population? Is it the test scores? Is it no population has a lot to do with it. So, for example, in Montgomery County, we have 160,000 students, and that's why in every proposed budget, we're not truly accurate on how many students in terms of our enrollment. We also have an issue with a lot of more kids staying home and getting homeschooling. So. During this proposal process, we say, okay, we're expecting 163,000 kids that are being enrolled to the school, which will allow the county executive or superintendent to request more money. And they also get a lot of that money through property taxes, too, as well, in the county. And then they also get MSDE, the Maryland State Department of Education. They get funding from the state, and then they also get federal funding and or miscellaneous funding too, as well. So that's how they're able to uh, bring the, all those different metrics together and pretty much provide what the overall operating budget and request what the capital budget as well will be for that fiscal year. So even in that regard, if you look at the bigger picture, Montgomery County is at an advantage, especially when you compare it to places like Baltimore, right? Well, Baltimore City has a four point seven billion dollar operating budget, which is more than Montgomery County. Montgomery County has a 3.3 operating billion dollar budget. In Baltimore City, they get $25,000 per pupil. And in Montgomery County, I believe it's about $19,000 per pupil in the education system. The problem with Baltimore City is the rapid corruption in terms of the administrators, the uh, lawmakers, uh, the, the, the bureaucratic side of the education system. That's the problem that Baltimore City has. And I always tell people all the time, if you want to know everything that's wrong with the inner city, please watch The Wire. It's one of the best TV mm -hmm. ever. The Wire is a perfect encapsulation mm -hmm. of all the issues uh, that the inner city faces. So Baltimore City, the money is there. Uh, but it's it's in terms of, I would say, what's how, how do I want to characterize it? Uh, discipline, discipline and ensuring that the lawmakers are doing the right thing. There isn't any embezzlement. There isn't any corruption, you know, those type of things. That's a problem that Baltimore City has right now, unfortunately. And who's holding these people accountable that are being elected? So, and, and, that's, and that's the thing, elections. Elections are supposed to be an accountability mechanism for the lawmakers. But the problem is that the lawmakers they have so much money and there's no money, there's no real way of getting money outside of politics. So you have lawmakers who are entrenched members of the political establishment where they have huge donors, huge base of money that allows them to disseminate their message, purchase uh, advertisements, where there um, are the lawn signs or on TV. 
And a lot of us, we don't necessarily do our homework on who our candidates are, who is representing us. So we go to the voting booth and we select a candidate that has the biggest name recognition, the biggest uh, face recognition, who has the most political capital. Now, if we can get more and more everyday Americans to participate in local, like those could be actually real accountability mechanisms. For example, I know uh, Baltimore City and Gaithersburg are fundamentally different in many ways, but Gaithersburg had a local election last year. Um, I think the 39,000 people in the city of Gaithersburg, 11,000 people showed up to actually vote. So just imagine if we had 25,000 people turning out, doing their homework and supporting candidates that are grassroots based, uh, candidates who they did their homework on. Those are real accountability mechanisms and measurements for uh, politicians who are willing to govern against our interests. Hmm. It's going to be a very basic question um, because for people who are not very versed with how politics work or how to ask the right questions, right? And you're running for the Board of Education. What is that? What does that mean? Are you going to, is that a committee role? Is that an individual role? Um, what, how would you explain being on, you know, a, being voted to the Board of Education to, to the average person? Yeah. And, and that's a great question. I don't think that's a basic question, but essentially the Board of Education, uh, the Board of Education has dominion over the operating budget, over the education system. They have, they can request the capital budget improvements for school infrastructure renovation projects. They have dominion over policy making. They have dominion over how the curriculum um, is set up essentially in the school appointments for administrative positions. Um, what, else, what else do we have? It's a very, very broad position and there are multiple different responsibilities and tasks that the Board of Education has. But one member in and of itself cannot unilaterally institute reforms because it takes a majority. Here in Montgomery County, we have seven board members, five districts, two at large, and one student uh, board member. Now, the student board member is elected to as well by the students. He has a one-year term, but the other board members, they have a four-year term, and they're elected by the constituents and stakeholders. And those mm -hmm. now. It's kind of weird how the composition of it is because it's, they say there are two at-large members, uh, but all of them are really at-large members because voters can, regardless of their jurisdiction or what district they're in, they can vote for either board member in, in every election cycle. For example, there's District 2, District 4, and one at-large position, and my district and only is District 5. But if I'm just a regular voter, I can select four, two, and at large position two as well. And Montgomery County is the 13th largest school board, school district, I'd say, in the country as well. Very huge budget, 160,000 students, uh, 206 schools. So it looks a little bit different from each school district uh, across America in terms of the composition, uh, the number of board members, et cetera. And then you have a president and a vice president. And essentially the vice president and the president, they preside over all board meetings and they appoint board members to specific uh, committees for the Board of Education. So that's like a little bit of a very brief surface level synopsis of the board uh, composition. Curious about why you chose um, <clears throat> county in opposed to other surrounding counties. So I, 
I was born and raised in Montgomery County. I went to Greenwood Elementary in Alney, Rosa Parks Elementary in Alney, and Sherwood High School in Alney. Uh, so I'm a lifelong Montgomery County resident. Uh, even in my early learning school, I grew up on Georgia Avenue in Montgomery County. I completed all my secondary and primary education in Montgomery County. I think my heart bleeds in Montgomery County. So uh, yeah, I I really wanted to come home and actually make real change in my community and not carpet bag somewhere where I think it could be politically expedient or I might have some type of electoral advantage somewhere else. But I really wanted to come home and make change in my community. So it has a level of sentimental value to you as well. Absolutely, definitely. Definitely, yes. Uh, and I would actually implore a lot of younger guys like myself to engage. Uh, this is a big reason why I wanted to run for office. I mean, I remember AK and I we were talking about it last time. If I can run, literally anyone can run. And that's the whole point of this campaign is to have more African-American young males to have their voices be heard, speak on behalf of the next, the younger generation here in Montgomery County and their community. That's a great thing, right? But most people are supposed to look at it as especially those of color, right? They might probably look at it as a waste of time because mm. it might be, yo, like, why would I even want to waste my time like this? Because I know I'm not going to make it to the top, right? I might get to some point and, and because of how things are in this country, you know what I mean? I'm not going to make it to, to the next step, right? When you look at those dynamics and, you know, your background and stuff like that, how do you wake up every day telling yourself that, you know what, I'm going to make this regardless of what? So, and this is what I tell people all the time. It's like, what if what if our ancestors felt the same way? Will, will we still be in shackles and uh, will we still be slaves? What if Thomas Sankara felt I had no way to change Upper Volta to Burkina Faso? What if Sakatori said I can never lead a revolutionary movement in, in Guinea? Who were our Pan-Africanists or uh, uh, Steve Biko in South Africa or Felix Mumi in Cameroon? On Kwame and Cormor, what if they said there's just really no pathway? Or even here in America, W.B. Du Bois, Marcus Garvey, MLK, Booker T. Washington, uh, our our founding fathers, if if they quit, I strongly believe that we probably may be in shackles to this day. Probably still may be slaves. Probably still be considered as commerce property that type of thing. So that's why I tell all of the younger individuals, like, you have no glass ceilings. Nothing can stop you. If you don't continue to fight, there won't be a stronger and brighter future for the next generation. How do you plan on working with, you know, the other um, individuals on the board, elected officials, right, both within and outside, you know, your political party? Now, so I, I consider myself uh, a consensus builder. Um, I'm adherent to a wide array of different political ideologies. I am adherent to some things on the progressive left, and I'm also adherent to some things on the progress on the more of the traditional conservative right. Now, someone say fits. What does that look like? Maybe on the outside of education, I believe that institutional racism is something that still pervasive here in the United States of America, and I also enjoy laissez-faire economics. Uh, low regulation and oversight, and it's it's and uh tax and, and smaller taxes, you know. So I can find nuance in anyone's stance or beliefs or some of the things that they're adhering to, and at the end of the day, I understand 
the most important thing is finding common ground, coming to the middle, getting to the centrist bipartisan consensus, regardless of where they are in the political spectrum, from the paleocons or maybe the contemporary progressives today, where they have uh, more, where they prioritize the alternative lifestyle type of thing. You know, I can find nuance in anyone's beliefs and say, hey guys, I think they all should have a common goal. Now, here in the context of education on the board and getting these majorities, this is what I mean in terms of uh, consensus building, because you have different schools of thoughts on the Board of Education. You have some members who are a little bit more progressive. You have a little some members who are a little bit more conservative, but we all need to find a common ground at the end of the day and, you know, pick each ideas from everyone and say, what are some things that we could all agree on and hearken in on those things and facilitate those things for the children? And one thing that on the, you know, like top election cycles, especially like presidential elections, right? They always look at, you know, the president's spouse, right? Mm -hmm. Something like mm -hmm. that. Like that's something that I pay attention to, right? When you bring it down to, you know, local politics, is that something that, you know, um, people pay attention to as well? I mean, being that you're very young, you're not, I don't think you've hit the third floor yet. No. <laughs> right. No. So, yes, even on the local level of matters, I actually was speaking to a potential donor earlier today, and that was one of the questions. Um, are you married? Um, you have a spouse, you have a significant other. Those are all things that matter, especially for younger men in positions of power, because unfortunately, when certain people, not all, when certain people acquire or attain power, they use that as instruments of abuse, and that can be used as some unscrupulousness with uh, maybe people from the opposite sex in the workplace or those type of things. So people are a little bit abrasive and apprehensive to a lot of younger men that aren't married or aren't in a committed relationship. So yes, that matters. I remember Tim Scott on the outset of his campaign for the GOP presidential primary, I mean, We've never known Tim Scott to have a significant other or a wife, but all of a sudden on the campaign trail, he presents to the world his obscure girlfriend that he's had um, for this amount of time. And we saw the same thing in 2020 with Senator Cory Booker too as well. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that is somewhat of a prerequisite for political office is having a significant other and having a wife, especially for a heterosexual uh, younger male. Just candidly speaking. What do you need donor dollars for in the Board of Education election? So this is the thing, especially we're challenging an incumbent, an incumbent uh, who does have a lot of, I would say, political capital because she has an, she has an incumbency status. So remember how we spoke not too long ago about sometimes voters don't necessarily do their due diligence, which is not their fault. This is my job as a candidate to explain to them who I am, introduce who I am, and give them alternative options. And if they select a person who they know the most, the most uh, name recognition, that's an indictment on me on how well I was able to campaign. But we need that money to disseminate our message, spread the message, whether it's internet advertisements, radio advertisements, mailers to. So there are there are six hundred thousand registered voters in Montgomery County and 1.1 million residents in Montgomery County. Okay. The last the last 2020 presidential cycle all the way at the bottom on the general election, the incumbent won 250,000 
voters that came out and supported her. Mm. So you need to at least reach just to be competitive 250,000, 300,000 voters that mm. are to select you, especially when you're challenging or trying to knock down an incumbent. So you need a lot of capital, a lot of money to spread your name amongst such a wide uh, base in terms of the electorate. So we're not going to be able to like knock on $250,000. It doesn't matter how hard you think you can work. It's just not physically possible. Even if you did 25,000 doors a month, you know, in five months, you're still going to be short, unfortunately. So that's that's where that money comes in. And there's a lot of money in politics. And typically the candidate or politician that's able to do the best in terms of fundraising, they have an easier time getting elected because campaigns are all about message dissemination. That's the science behind political campaigns is message dissemination, spreading your campaign platform and reaching to direct audiences that are high propensity voters, which will require sometimes even phone banking. Like for example, on a Saturday, get out the vote. We want to phone bank 250 people. That requires paying volunteers. That requires uh, paying for the mechanisms and the systems that allow you to uh, even bifurcate the data that you may get from the Board of Elections and then call all these registered voters in a specific area or jurisdiction. Another thing too as well is in Maryland, in the state of Maryland, ballot harvesting is legal. So I can, so let's say you're a, you're a voter in Montgomery County and you're like, I don't want to stand in long lines on election day and sit there for eight hours. So I'll rather call the state board of elections, request for them to mail in my ballot. And once it gets here, I could either do my ballot and then submit it back by mail or if there's an organization or a candidate or special interest group, they can go to different doors and they can actually get everyone's ballot and then submit it to the state board of elections for them. But that requires capital, that requires money to pay volunteers and these systems to track the data, et cetera, and so on. I was going to ask, that's a pretty high number. That's a fairly impressive number, especially for the area. Yes. reach that many people. I get it now. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So it requires a lot of money. Uh, it requires political capital, whether it's money, name recognition. Um, those are the two tenets or components of political capital, name recognition and money, essentially. And it's like, those candidates that have either those two things have a very clear pathway to victory. So even all the way down on uh, war level, money is required. I actually, in the previous election cycle in 2020, there was a board member that she was able to fundraise $75,000. Now, the caveat is that you had the political machine and the establishment that supported her and you know, they're all one big consortium and cabal and they come together, they, you know, call their friends, their other donors, and say, this is the candidate we're supporting, put money behind our race. We want them to win and we need that to win. But on my end, I'm a candidate who is an independent running outside of the political machine. Uh, so my campaign is 50% self-subsidized and I and the people that have donated and supported are like my family friends, like my unfortunately, like AK knows, uh, and free and my sisters or my cousins or close friends. Those are the people who are essentially subsidizing my parents as well. They're helping in terms of donations and those type of things. 
So it, it requires a lot of money to win political office. Is 75000 considered a win? So now my opponent raised 25000 in um, the last election cycle. Now, remember how I said that having political capital consists of name recognition or having money. Right. You may have not had at that much money. It was only 25000 She did have name recognition because the Washington Post endorsed her. And we all know how huge WAPO is, the Washington Post. Mm-hmm. We all read WAPO and the Washington Post. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you open the Washington Post and uh, you say, hey, uh, I have no idea who this individual may be, but the Washington Post endorsed this, so she must be formidable. So mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. the psychology of a voter, too, as well. It's the same thing as we have this thing called the Apple ballot, the teachers union. The teachers union, they have so much power and political influence in Montgomery County. Uh, and Every other poll inside of Montgomery County, the teachers unions probably have five or 10 volunteers handing out Apple ballot, and it's a list of all the candidates that they endorse. Mm. So some people use the Apple ballot and they vote up and down the ticket. So that's a form of name recognition and political capital. Mm-hmm. So those are the two things that you kind of have to have. Well, not kind of, they're prerequisites. <laughs> to win one or the two. And if you have both of them, you're almost certain to win. Mm-hmm. And how many people does the um, the union, would you say, with the Apple ballots? The, the union, so let's say that in the previous gubernatorial election in 2022, there was 450,000 people that turned out. Mm-hmm. And in gubernatorial elections, which is like a governor's race, it's not much turned on, like the midterms, mm-hmm. congressional races and state legislators. Mm-hmm. Not that much, but for presidential races, that turnout jumps up to maybe 550,000. And these are numbers I'm using just for like Montgomery County. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The teachers union can legitimately have access to probably over 400, 500,000 voters in Montgomery County. That's wow. a- yeah, that's, that's, you know, every board member, if they were smart and they followed uh, prior uh, election trends, they would know that about 85 to 90% of board members that were endorsed by the teachers union essentially won. So a teachers union endorsement is the, one of the quickest pathways to get through. Mm, now I'm curious about your strategy. I'll ask offline though. <laughs> <laughs> that was going to be my question. <laughs> like, what is your, I mean, I bet by now you've rehearsed this line over and over, but simplify it for us. Like, what is your campaign strategy? You know, and I and I tell everyone that I'm not a politician. I'm not a professional politician. I don't work with consultants or strategists uh, to rehearse my lines and go over my talking points. But my strategy is very, very simple, and it's actually not nuanced. And I have no issue even speaking about this on the record because there's nothing new underneath the sun and I'm not some type of a speak for the strategist that will have something that no one has ever heard before. But what I'm getting at is that I want endorsements really from the people. I want even low propensity voters to come out in the Burnsville area, the Damascus area, um, downtown Silver Spring area, Germantown area, uh, because I, 
I'm just not doing real tail politics just to win. I really want to see effectual change and some civil reforms here in the education system. And I want more people from outside of the political system to come in. Now I can go to like Leisure World, where Leisure World makes 52% of the residents of Leisure World turn out in every election cycle, extremely high turnout. And I can go and try to beg them for their support, but they are typically inclined to probably support more of the establishment, old guard, uh, career professional politicians. But my strategy more than anything is reaching out to that other 500,000 unregistered voters here in Montgomery County and getting them to participate in our electoral politics. So now someone can say, hey, that's a little bit idealistic. And I say, I agree, you're right. You know, how am I going to convince people who typically don't turn out to turn out? And my number one strategy is just to provide such a compelling message and hopefully my conviction and my energy and passion can exude, uh, can be infectious to people who are listening and they can compel them to come out and, you know, support our campaign. What can the people um, that you're trying to draw out um, to be engaged in the whole uh, voting process, what can they expect from you if if, if you get voted on the board? Like, I, what are the things that you would push for? So five things in terms of policy platform is research-based policies that are really focused on closing the achievement gap. And someone say, hey, bitch, what does that look like? Extended learning is something that can really mitigate educational losses, especially post-pandemic. The Center of Economic Policy Research, they've done a study that shows that 6% increases in uh, educational gains just from extended learning. And I'm not talking about like after school, homework club, some supervisory uh, teaching, looking over them. No, we're talking about actual really real rigorous curriculums after school, a math curriculum. In Montgomery County, I remember in 2019, a third grade, I think I was talking to AK about this, a third grade, 52% of the kids were proficient in math. And now by 2021, it was down to 22% of kids that were proficient in math. The children, that's 31% decrease. They need longer days. They can't go home at two o'clock anymore, 2.30 or three o'clock. They need extra learning hours from three to six so we can mitigate the educational gap. The second thing I spoke with AK last time in terms of what I wanna push in is CTE, Career Technical Education Vocational Learning. Um, Montgomery County only has three schools that has a comprehensive CTE curricula. Uh, Seneca Valley, Thomas Edison School of Technology, and Wheaton High School. Out of the 25 schools, there's no way we have a $5.7 billion cumulative capital budget. There's no reason why we should put in $200 million more million in our capital budget to erect more CTE schools. But the problem is that becomes a cultural conversation. Um, and what your ideals are, some of the more educated professional, imaginary, uh, professional managerial class, they believe that education, going to college, uh, high chambers of academia is where everyone should go to. But that one size fits all isn't anything that is effectual for everyone. So we need more CTE learning. Number three, wage parity for paraeducators here. That will shrink the sizes of the classroom. That will allow more individualized learning. That will give us 
more opportunities for extended learning and also offer teachers competitive wages. How? In the operating budget, Montgomery County, we have this practice where we don't spend all of our money that's recommended on a structural salaries at the end of the, the fiscal year. We take that money and we spend it in other miscellaneous school spending, which I'm not sure why they continue to get away with it. We have like local politicals who blow the whistle about these things, but we need other members of the community stakeholders who are going to blow the whistle on these things too and demand that teachers and paraprofessionals are paid. Now we would have to work with SEIU, SEIU Local 500. That's the union for the paraprofessionals um, and the paraeducators. And we also need to work with MCEA or the teacher union to support them and offer good faith collective bargaining agreements to ensure that they are offered competitive wages too as well. Number four is uh, getting back to the centrist bipartisan consensus, which is and calling political polarization. This is more rhetorical than policy because here's the thing, we have this thing called this inclusive curriculum that's been a very hot button topic here in Montgomery County, unfortunately. Um, when you have more of the progressive side where they'll like to see um, more of that alternative lifestyle teaching within the educational system and you have the religious right conservative parents who are really against it. Now, this is also a structural problem with Maryland education in and of itself, MSDE, which pretty much is sanctioned and allowed this teaching. Then you also have the attorney general signing an amicus brief with other 19 other attorney generals in the country stating that this is something that they fully support. Um, so we have to have very honest conversations here in our county and say uh, this is something that is part of our education system and is also pending civil litigation too as well. And I think at some point may or may not go to the Supreme Court. But in the meantime, we have to have honest conversations. We need to allow parents from the religious right to testify and show up in public meetings, which they've been barred from, unfortunately. And I think that's extremely erroneous. So we need to end those practices and have actual conversations, which will allow us to get to the center and find common ground. Now, the fifth thing is we need an accountability and oversight committee here at the Board of Education. The bureaucratic side of MCPS, the regulatory side of MCPS, administrative side, is just a mess. You know, we had this principal that had over 18 sexual assault allegations over the last seven years, and you have MCPS investigators and high-ranking rank-and-file members in MCPS that have gone to extents to tamper evidence, intimidate witnesses, um, it's to retaliate retaliatory measures for uh, members within MCPS who are willing to investigate it and blow the whistle on that. So we need a board of education to actually preside over the investigative measures here in Montgomery County in terms of how we handle um, sexual assault allegations. And for some reason, they do this thing where they hire this Jackson Lewis law firm for a single issue that they have. And there's really no actual impartiality in terms of investigation. And in this Oversight Accountability and Transparency Committee, we have to have the Inspector General's office become the de facto investigators of all issues concerning Montgomery County in terms of impropriety, sexual assault, those type of things, because it's only when they do their investigations where we kind of find some real accountability to exactly what's going on. So those are like, in a very nutshell, um, 
surface level five uh, steps and synopsis of our campaign platform and the policies that we would like to institute. And did you say you were District 5, Fitzgerald? No, so I'm at large. Well, for me, my so only Brookville, Burnsville, that service with that area, that's District 5. But the position I'm running for is at large, which encompasses all of Montgomery County. So whose spot are you trying to take? Brenda Wolf's or who? <laughs> no. So, um, uh, no, not Brenda Wolf. My incumbent is Lynn Harris. Lynn Harris, uh, she's the at-large. So how it works is that, so this one is at-large two and four in the presidential cycle. And then in a gubernatorial cycle, it's going to be at-large one and three. So we have at-large is Carla Sylvester. She's school board president. You have Vice President Lynn Harris at large. You have one who's Grace Rivera Oven, two's Rebecca Shumnowski, if I'm saying her name correctly, three is Julie Yang, four is Sheba Evans, the five is um, Brenda Wolf. So those are, and then you have Sammy Saeed, who's a student school board member right now. So it's only four, two, and one of the at large positions that it's open right now. Well, the good thing is that um, Lynn Harris just got elected, right? Yeah, she got elected in 2020. Right. And my opponent is someone who has, uh, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to do any of the mudslinging. I'll save that for any debates <laughs> moving forward, because these are all things that are reviewed when you post this out in the public. So I'll, I'll leave my, I'll save my shots for, you know, when we're debating one another in person. The debate. I, there, so the special interest groups that um, hold these candidate forums, they call them forums, but they're really debates mm -hmm. with anything. So sometimes it could be like the Black and Brown Coalition or maybe the Taxpayer League. It just depends on who's willing to organize it and then get all the candidates in there and so on. So I don't, I don't know which ones that they're having. I haven't seen any, and I've always <laughs> searched for all these things. So. Maybe we, as the election gets closer and closer, those things will become more defined. More defined. Awesome. Keep us posted on that. I'll be there. <laughs> so we're actually doing a town hall March 2nd. Okay. And I'd love for you guys to be there, too. And that would also be as a quasi-debate uh, format forum type of thing. And I want all members within the community, stakeholders, community leaders, elected officials, maybe even other candidates, to come and ask questions, ask tough questions too as well. I believe that candidates have a fiduciary obligation to articulate what their policy platform is. You know, I don't believe in the hiding and not being transparent about the things that I wanna do or get done. I truly believe that people should have direct access to their elected officials and ask them the tough, hard questions. Yeah, definitely. Um, come back right before, let's talk about it and uh, let's remind the people where it's happening and that is happening for sure. Perhaps definitely. I would love to. And I'm hoping to see you guys there. Definitely. So you beat Lynn Harris and you become the vice president? No, no, it doesn't work like that. So it's actually weird. New members of the board, when they first win, mm -hmm. get put on the outskirts because it's like a circle. So they got to get put on, put on the outskirts. Right. And, you know, the president, they, they have a vote. Right. They have a vote during a business meeting and all members will vote. OK, so let's say in this in this one, they do this vote in December. 
than every four years. So who are we supporting for president? And all the members of the Board of Education, they'll select who they pick. And the tradi traditionally, they don't usually select new or freshman members. They usually select members who have experience, members who are probably on their second term, who's won a couple, one or two election, one election cycle on it, those type of things. So no, I, <laughs> I won't just assume her position. There'll probably be another vote and then they'll probably select another senior member of the Board of Education to be the vice president if I were to hypothetically win. Gotcha. And just looking at the um, the higher cast, I don't really see any men. Nope. But, and I definitely don't see any black men. <laughs> nope. So you are definitely encroaching on uncharted territory, which is good. I like that, right? Absolutely. You know, and we're a county where we we prioritize diversity. This is something that we say we're a county of diversity. 18% African American, 20% Latino, and actually the white population is less than 50% in Montgomery County. Mm -hmm. it's very uncharted territory in terms mm -hmm. of the broad uh, composition here in the United States of America. So I think our Board of Education should reflect that diversity that we have here in the mm -hmm. Gulf. We have no African-American men that are representative of the African-American peoples here in the education system. So with that said, how do you think your background uniquely positions you to understand and address the needs of your township? So I, I remember I, I, uh, I talked about this a little bit earlier too on social media, because this is a question that I get a lot. A lot of people are like, but you're 28 years old. What experience do you have that makes you qualified? And I tell them the experience and background that I have is my unparalleled fervor for substantive engagement with the, with the community, uh, stakeholder partnerships, fresh ideas, and apolitical policy proposals. I think that gives me uh, the best foot forward in terms of overall experience to a certain extent that gives me the best foot forward in terms of overall uh, qualifications for this position. Uh, so I actually think my youth is actually a strength for me. And I think I can use that to my advantage and my energy more than anything. That's my number one thing that I would say I have above everyone, my energy and passion, because I can dictate that. I can control that. You know, uh, what is my overall excitement level in terms of actually providing real change here in our public pedagogy? Man, let's say you walk into a room, right? And as as is just mentioned, right? It seems seems as though you're like the only black guy there, right? Amongst, you know, um, others and women at that too, right? So being that the odds are kind of stacked against you, right? In terms of like the policies that you want to, you know, put in place, especially diverse policies and that, right? Let's say things don't go your way, you know, within your the first year or the you know first six months or what have you, right? Like, how do you plan on knowing that you're going in there with that mindset? How do you plan on um, keep pushing your agenda, even if maybe not, right? You get a little pushback. How do you still plan on, you know, waking up every day and making sure that those things that you promised during your campaign, right, you will see them through, regardless. Yeah. Of so now. The thing about it is that there's nothing that happens overnight. You know, Rome wasn't built in 24 hours or even six months. It will take gradual and consistent attempts in terms of actually pulling people along. As I stated earlier, you need that majority uh, 
to actually get policy and legislation passed through. So I think that consistent effort and massaging different members of the board. And after four years of just staunch advocacy, I think I could go back on election season and say this time around, we need to run a slate. We, and as I'm seeking the election, we need to run a slate. We need, I need two other members for uh, District 2 and District 4 that would give us that, uh, give us the bandwidth to pass policy legislation quicker. You know, so I think four years of that staunch, repeated, consistent advocacy uh, would give us more, uh, I would say, purchasing power uh, at the next election cycle moving forward. Those kind of things. When did you announce that you were running? So I actually announced on my birthday last year of August 18th that I believe would be sentimental to me and something I will remember uh, for my life. And I actually wanted to get in the race as early as possible because, Mm. uh, you know, just frankly speaking, I'm relatively unknown. And I think I've been able to build some political capital since then. That was essentially the strategy to jump in first and early, you know, to build that name recognition. So voters have the opportunity to get to know me, thoroughly follow a lot of the things that I'm posting online, my online infrastructure, and allow them to make the decisions that way. So I I will be pretty much campaigning effectively um, for a year plus if we make it to the general election. Um, but if we just make it to primary, it's not going to hopefully make it farther. I'll be campaigning for eight, nine months or so, something like that. Okay. And what what kind of, what's your team look like? So... I have a campaign manager, a treasurer, and a communications director. And the team was much bigger before. I had um, a strategist, I had a policy advisor, um, and I had, uh, she was a field director, field ops director, but I condensed it over the time to concentrate our forces more. And I think the smaller that we are, uh, the quicker we can move, and the more agile we be, you know, we are in certain instances. What 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 metrics do you use to kind of track your um your traction with the community and engagement and things like that? I would honestly fundraising too as well. How well we're doing with fundraising, okay, indicator of how well we've been able to articulate our overall message. I remember in the earlier on the outset of our campaign, our metric what we would do is we would kind of tally how many community events we're doing within that week. So our benchmark would be like three community events in that week. And if we're consistently hitting about three or four different events and campaigning that hard in a week, I think we would say that's indicative of us doing well on a campaign trail and really creating really relationships there. But at this point of our campaign, the one way to actually really track how well we're doing in terms of community engagement and how hard we're campaigning is fundraising. So far, I'm, I mean, I don't, I don't know if you can answer this, but so far, how much have you raised and what's your target? You said, can you repeat that? I said, so far, how, how much have you raised and what's your target goal? Like your top, your, your um, target so, number. So yeah, and I can, and I have, I have no problem divulging this information too as well, because actually state election law requires that all candidates divulge this information. All candidates should have a political action committee. And 
you can go to the state board of elections and punch in that candidate's um, you can punch in that candidate's political action committee name, and you'll be able to actually track how much they've made and what they spend uh, their, their campaign capital money on, so to speak. And we're in the process of that right now. So I, I think we're we're doing pretty well. There's a lot we can do. I, my goal is about seventy-five thousand. That's my goal. But for how much you've actually made, I'll leave that for the uh, <laughs> the campaign hawks to do their homework <laughs> and figure out how much we actually made. But our goal is seventy five thousand. Earlier, you mentioned something about talking to one of the donors, and you know, um, to pose that question about you being married or not. You know what I mean? Um, I'm still kind of curious. Going back to that, your response to this donor, right? What was your response to them, if you don't mind? Sharing? Yeah, no. I these are things as um, someone who's seeking elected office or public office, there's not much privacy in your life. You know, you kind of have to put those things behind you. And if you want privacy in your life, you probably should seek a different profession. So these are all questions that I'm open to as well. And I, I responded to myself. I have a significant other uh, woman who I've been seeing for an extended period of time. We are dating very closely. and. We're right now in the position of making the next step of our relationship. Uh, so, and I, that's essentially how I explained it to him. And he's like, you know, you're a young man. I don't necessarily expect you, uh, expect you to have children and so on. But I also articulated to him that, you know, that's our goal. Children, marriage, nuclear family um, is essentially things that we're looking at here in the near future. What's her background? I'm curious. So she's actually a data analyst. and. Um, she makes a lot of money. She's extremely intelligent. She enjoys uh, political theory, political science too, as well. She worked on campaigns as well as PACs also, and her previous professional experience also. And she's very supportive on the campaign. She helps me with ideas and community events, um, canvassing, even from a strategic standpoint. And she is a data professional too, as well. So. She has the data that we have from the State Board of Elections. So now she's bifurcating that data, splitting it apart, um, and actually analyzing it and telling me, like, okay, we actually need to go back to State Board of Elections and get more because they only gave you 175,000 voters when in all actuality there's 600,000 registered voters. So she helps me a lot on the data analytics side too, as well. Just along those lines, right? Um... How important was it for you, right, to find? Well, first of all, what outside of all everything that you mentioned, right? Um, we where you trying to go, and <laughs> and this question is coming from you know just not too long ago, um, Jonathan Majors, right? He had a you know his um court case and things like that, and then you hear him talk about oh he wanted the woman to be like this other woman, you know he he mentioned a few other you know ladies and things like that. Right. How important was it for you to select somebody who sees your vision, right? And do they even see your vision, right? Things like that. Speak a little bit about that. Yeah. So I think that marriage and relationship is something is where you're becoming one with one person. You're you and that person. You're essentially not just spending the most time that you are with somebody. You're even legally married. And I always think that. I don't believe in arbitrary dating or 
serial dating, if you're dating someone, it's to get married, essentially. And I think people go wrong when they engage or partake in the serial or arbitrary, arbitrary dating for that matter. So it's extremely important for you to be with someone who's very in sync with your beliefs, your core values, your principalities, uh, your overall perspective of the world. And that plays a large part of my decision-making on who I would see as my significant other. Um, so that's the good thing we're with that person too right now, which I'm extremely pleased with, is that we have a lot of, um, we concur a lot on a lot of different things in terms of our overall perspective and outlook of the world. What role do you think the nuclear family plays in the bigger picture when it comes to education, right, community? The, the nuclear family is the biggest role. Um, there's a huge difference, actually. Uh, that's actually where education begins, is at home. Um, and this is not my anecdotal or some partisan talking point that I've come up with. The statistics corroborates that. If you see a lot of the students that are at the top in terms of educational competency in every metric, they come from the two-parent nuclear traditional home. Uh, mm. it's very, It's a very big part. I think I can even articulate it well enough how demonstrably important it is. Um, so a kid just coming from a nuclear family has a competitive advantage educationally uh, in terms of the contemporaries from the student that comes from the single parent home. And again, that's something in our community that was uh, essentially given to us because the government incentivized uh, single parenthood in, in our community. Now, you have zero economic opportunity. The men are economically castrated or are perpetually in prison. What is a what is a woman in our community? What is she going to do? How is she going to survive? She has to rely on governmental assistance. But the caveat is that there's only so much money that you can make before you get cut off the government assistance. You cannot have a man, an able-bodied man in that in that home. That's correct. So it incentivizes single parenthood in our community. People think like this welfare queen thing of like the hood sugar booger black woman that just sits on her behind and just pops children out with a thousand men. And it's much more nuanced than that. <laughs> so we have to kind of claw back those practices to reconstitute the nuclear family in our communities. And in areas where you see the education system struggling, is it safe to hypothesize that there's a consistent it's rampant it's it's rampant it's a conclusion <laughs> it's a conclusion it's rampant single parenthood is rampant in rural communities and in uh, inner city communities where uh, the educational system is struggling because it does begin at home and then it also has a lot to do with adult supervision too as well uh, how, how, if if the mom isn't on government assistance perpetually, she's probably working two to three jobs just to make ends meet and put bacon on the table. So the kid comes home uh, at 2.30, he takes his backpack, he flings it across the room and he's full speed outside on the streets and hasn't completed any of his homework. There isn't any additional learning time posterior to when school ends. 
And this woman can only be at one place at one time. <laughs> she can't be at work, leaving work, going to the next job, and then making sure Johnny is getting extra math or reading time after school as well. So where you have the nuclear family where even if uh, both parents are working, just the overall emotional stability of that child allows that child to be a lot more successful in education. So it's very multifaceted in a, in a myriad of different ways. And that that's where it actually begins, where there's emotional stability, spiritual stability, um, economic uh, viability too as well, access to fresh and healthy meals. A lot of kids only eat at school. And these are farm students where they get free and reduced lunch meals. So it's like, I mean, it's a lot easier for me to sit down in the curriculum when I had um, cereal, eggs, um, honey oats, and apple than when I probably didn't have dinner last night after school. And my first time eating in 12 hours is probably like breakfast, the French toast breakfast. And that's another conversation with the food that they give these kids in the education system. So it's so multifaceted in so many ways. We have to reconstitute the nuclear family to see educational gains, especially in our community. Hmm. Hmm. A follow-up question I have to that. Um, I'm curious to know, what's your take on affirmative action vis-a-vis -vis, like the educational system? Is that something that can can foster okay. potentially, or is that detrimental? I want to be careful with my words because I know, <laughs> I know how. I know if you can't answer that on air, that's fine. We can talk. No, 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 no. I answer, I answer all questions. I answer all questions. <laughs> but I know this affirmative action is something that's extremely dear to our hearts, especially as African Americans. But one thing that I want to be very honest about is that ever since the 1960s, um, and you see some of those civil rights legislation and affirmative action being instituted, I ask people, how has that been effectual for the broad experience of Blacks in terms of education? We're still at the bottom after 60, 70 years of affirmative action. If you look at our educational institutions, they're largely dominated by the dominant society. A lot of our boys, they don't, it, first of all, let's not even talk about post-primary and secondary education. Let's just make sure that our kids are in a position where uh, they're at grade levels. They can do basic literacy uh, in terms of math and numeracy, I should say. Uh, those type of things, just having and possessing those skills. And then in terms of the ranks of academia and college, we're not, we're, our boys are not going to school. Uh, affirmative action, it's something that a white woman, um, just truthfully speaking, white women have become more beneficials, beneficiaries of more than anyone else. White women and members of the alternative community, I tell that that has nothing to do with us. I'm just being as frank as possible. Uh, it, there's been no dividends or no gains for us educationally over 60, 70 years of affirmative action. And I'll argue with anyone about that. Don't I don't want to hear about like Katanji Brown or Kamala Harris or uh, Barack Obama or uh, Neil Tyson deGrasse. Or I don't want to hear about like our cream of the crop at the top 
uh, intellectually inclined members of our community, I analyze data in terms of the broad collective. And the broad collective, we haven't been beneficiaries of affirmative action. And it's actually funny because a lot of these, <laughs> the Asian contingencies, like, oh, we don't want to go to school with the Black kids because they don't, we don't think that they were qualified and affirmative action is actually pushing them in. It's actually funny because now they're seeing that they're also being harmed by affirmative action and it's still a little bit harder for them to even get in these uh, institutions of high academia. And if they were really talking about merit, they would go after the legacy students who their parents are Harvard grads or large donors to Yale and they get pushed. But it, I, I tell a lot of members in our community, like if people think that, hey, we're not qualified or intellectually inclined enough to go to Harvard, Princeton, and Yale, and they're just throwing us a bone, that's fine. We should go to Howard. We should go to Florida and um We should go to Winston-Salem State. We should go to um, Central State. We should go to, uh, what's, what's the school now? Tuskegee Institute. That's six years ago, actually, when we were doing a lot better educationally, that's where all Black intellectuals went. That's that's where we went to, you know? So Harvard, Princeton, and Yale, we don't care if they pick up the cream of the crop in our communities that they want to stop doing that because we're not seeing large collective gains in our community. As a matter of fact, when our intellectuals went to our schools, we saw more gains on a collective level uh, back then. So that was like my long-winded on, on affirmative action. But, but please, by make no mistake, what Clarence Thomas did was egregious. Um, him being, um, because let's be real, Clarence Thomas is a beneficiary of affirmative action. And what yeah. he, mm-hmm. he climbed up the ladder. And once he got to the ladder, he kicked the ladder behind him. And then, <laughs> let's, let's be honest, Thomas has some opinions and rules that can be very antithetical to the black community, especially Flowers versus Mississippi, which comes to my mind specifically. So let's also be honest, and that becomes more of a conversation of his originalist, textualist uh, perspective of the U.S. Constitution or interpretation of the U.S. Constitution, which some can say has uh, some of the white supremacy uh, and those type of things. So. I'm someone who's very fair and objective in my in my analysis and critiques. Somebody might be listening, right, thinking to themselves that, you know, um, the Thomas Clarences of the world, right, well, America, right, probably once thought like you, right? Mm-hmm. Probably in their youth, they had the same ideology, same mindset as you, right? But once they got in a position to make decisions, right, to change, to impact, mm-hmm. right? Um, so like that one, that one amongst, that one color amongst, uh, uh, um, let me not put it that way. There were that one, <laughs> one out of the bunch, right? That was thinking different. But since that bunch had a collective of the same mindset, right? They kind of sort of persuaded him to think in their way. You know what I mean? It's like going into, it's like cops, for example, right? They say, oh, um, a cop cannot station on a cop, regardless of, how bad that cop is, right? You can't really tell on your on your peers. So going in here, right? Let's say, for example, seven people on the board, five people, right, want to go left and you want to go right and you only have that vote. 
And it's like that continuously. How do you plan on still standing on your ideals regardless of how the odds yeah. are stacked against you? And, and the, th the thing about it is what you said is very true because on the outset of Clarence Thomas, quote unquote, enlightenment period, uh, and on this path to intellectual curiosity, he actually started off as a radical progressive on the civil rights era. And he was very uh, loud about, you know, um, ending segregation and being a staunch civil rights advocate for his community because he grew up in the Jim Crow South Tootswell in Georgia and his grandfather, if I'm not mistaken. And we've seen a lot of our politicians, unfortunately, make that pivot. And Barack Obama is someone that comes to mind, you know, on the beginning of his political career, someone who's very actively involved in Chicago. And unfortunately, as soon as he assumes uh, the Oval Office, you know, he institutes policies um, that is essentially just a broad and large uh, bailout for corporate Wall Street or this total apathy for the Flint, um, Flint water crisis, drinking the water in front of them or his total disregard for actual police accountability reforms, as we've seen race relations get worse under his presidency, unfortunately. I remember there was a guy who was on death row at the beginning of his campaign, and Barack Obama had the authority to pardon him, and he refused to do, do so. Remember, there was a, um, a Harvard professor locked out of his house, <laughs> and he's trying to crawl back in his house, and Neighbors call a cop on him, and the cops beat him up, and Barack Obama invites the cop to the White House. Or his posture in the Middle East and killing and assassinating Muammar Gaddafi, who was a pan-Africanist, uh, someone who was a staunch supporter of Africa's true liberation. You know, and that's just partially what Barack Obama has done to the Black community, not just in America, but globally. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that... That's we saw that change, and essentially, I say that to say is like we need consistency from our politicians. We can't they can't uh, succumb to political pressure or acquiesce to the majority to maintain their seat, so or extend their political career. And that's why I always tell some people I'm not a politician. I would never consider myself a career politician. I always call consider myself an advocate. Because my job is to speak on the behalf of the community, you guys, our constituency, not to proliferate my ideals or the way how I view the world. I'm here to speak on behalf of members of my community. Uh, so that's why I call myself an advocate more than anything. So I can, hopefully I'm on the Board of Education for four years and the next term after that. And if, um, <laughs> you're in the, if the majority continues to... Uh, stymie or block some of my initiatives then so be it but i will continually to i'll continuously ardently support members of my community and speak on their behalf more than anything you know and unfortunately i'm sure everyone has heard that same line from every single politician um and that's why i don't necessarily have um obligations for higher office because it's very easy to get corrupted by power regardless of who you are, you know? Even Robert Mugabe started off as this like, you know, socialist, Marxist, revolutionary. And as he had power over time, he became extremely corrupted. Or even Sakitori to a certain extent was someone who was like a 
communist socialist revolutionary uh and actually even the french government even tried to stop everything and stop everything in their way and even uh flooding fake dollars fake currency in their economy to proliferate inflation and he still was able to fight that off and become a very strong and powerful fearless leader but even him became so corrupted by power paul kagame paul kagame in rwanda came in stopped the hutu the hutu and tutsi genocide which is one of the worst genocides and actually one of the biggest biggest saddest times from the international community no one stepped in and they allowed millions of people to die on their watch but now pakagame who has got rwanda's gdp gdp higher to higher than italy to a certain extent made rwanda uh power a power country in the global south in africa now has become somewhat of an authoritarian a totalitarian and he thwarts any political dissent in rwanda so Unfortunately, that's kind of what happens when you have someone who is in position of power for extended period of time. And once they get that taste, they do everything in their power to hold on to that. So I always tell people, I don't necessarily have any aspirations for higher office or attaining political power. It's more so focused on a local level and continue to speak on behalf of members of my community. I think as you articulated all too many times as a culture, we've trusted leaders and what they've done has proven to be misleaders, right? Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Unfortunately, I mean, as much as we talk about even Muammar Gaddafi, Muammar Gaddafi was someone who thwarted any political dissent and was tyrannical in his practices too as well. Mm -hmm. And it's a problem that all world leaders or heads of state they become very Machiavellian and they read that Prince book and they apply it literally. <laughs> and that's a problem. That's why I firmly believe even the democratic process and the democratic order is important to have a lot of turnover, especially in the executive office. It, it, it's very important. So yes, uh, politicians who've been in public office or public life for too long, unfortunately have a high propensity of abusing that power. Man, any other, we've been going, we've been going at it now. Um, I don't know, is this T, you guys have any other questions or we could call it? No, no sir. I'm, I'm good. This is fantastic. Yeah. This is yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, so um, my one last question is, when you look at somebody like Bernie Sanders, right, who mm -hmm. got all the great ideas, right, mm -hmm. um, for the people, right, but yet not getting... Um, the shine that he needs or not um, the popularity that he needs, right? Um, how do you plan to not be a Bernie Sanders? <laughs> Bernie Sanders' problem is as an independent. Unfortunately, Bernie Sanders caved to the political establishment and the quote-unquote polite society and the political machine. Because in 2016, Bernie Sanders was the one progressive candidate or populist that had the bandwidth to actually usher in these reforms. But this is not conspiracy. This is not conjecture. We know this unequivocally that the 2016 primary and that party was rigged against him. We know that I, I'm not making this up. There's civil litigation that corroborates this claim. We know this unequivocally. Donna Brazil wrote a book about it. It's public knowledge. But Bernie Sanders, 
I think became so consumed by the notoriety and popularity that he was able to amass over time. And he knew that having the political support of the establishment, the machine would extend that, led him to cave, uh, unfortunately, to the machine. And I tell people all the time, I'm not anyone who will be a perennial candidate or someone who will be 85 years old or 82 in the US Senate. That's impossible. I prefer to be with my grandchildren at that point and enjoying the latter parts of my uh, years. You know? That's one thing. I'm not consumed by attaining political power or holding political power in perpetuity. So that's what allows me to be an independent thinker and do things that I know is right. Um, I know is right on, on a fundamental level. Nice. I appreciate you, man. Is there anything that we haven't covered that you'd like for the people to know as we're closing here? No, I, I think we covered everything. We had a very robust conversation. And AKI, thank you guys so much. I'm extremely humbled by this experience and giving me the opportunity to disseminate my message on this platform. And, you know, thank you guys so much. I really appreciate it. And anytime you have another episode, I would love to come up and speak and even listen, you know, even listen. There's a lot that I can learn. Also, I know there's a lot that I can learn. I'm always seeking knowledge. So thank you guys so much for having me. For sure, for sure. How can people connect with you? So you can get on my social media, on my Twitter at just Fitzgerald Mo4 or my Instagram, FitzMo4, the number four, M-C-P-S-B-O-E. Uh, same thing for Facebook, or they can email me at FitzgeraldMo4 for M-C-P-S-B-O-E at AOL.com. Appreciate you, man. See, any conclusions when you're in there? No, I mean, it was pretty in-depth, clear, straight to the point. Um so appreciate you answering the questions and, you know, just educating for myself exactly like what what your journey is and the kind of reforms that you plan to bring. So I, I wish you all the best on this journey. <laughs> I think all too many times we have the wrong people representing us as a culture. And mm -hmm. just finding moments that we actually have a, the right person in a position that has the right heart for the people and wants to do the right thing that we should support, right? Uh, not only was I impressed by him, uh, I think he's going to win. Um, I think he has a great chance of winning, and I'm going to support him too every step of the way. I encourage our viewers to do the same thing. And um, I think that um, as long as your heart continues to be in the right place, you're going to be blessed and favored, bro. So just keep doing what you're doing. Um, you're intellectually sound. You have a heart for the people, and you, uh, you get it, right? Keep going. Gotta do the rest. Thank you. You've heard the man, man. I don't know what to say after that. You know, I mean, he captured it very well. <laughs> but now, nah, uh, ladies and gentlemen, again, another banger. Um, my guest today is Fitzgerald Buffo, and he is um, the affiliate candidate for the MCPS um, Education Board. You know what I mean? Um, March, you said March 5th to March 14th? So the primary... Early vote from second to May tenth, and then election day May fourteenth. May, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, hey, um, all you folks in Montgomery County, go out there vote. Um, uh, Fitzgerald Mufo, need you guys to show out the numbers, represent with this man in the seat, man, to, you know, um, impact those changes that you know he needs to make for the diverse community out there. You know, what I mean, um, 
this Unwind Central podcast. Um, you're one of your hosts, Uncle AK. With me today, I got Babaziz, T. Um, Lord, I see you lurking somewhere out there. Not sure if you're at work, but shout out to you. I know you're listening. Um, shout out to Tayo. I think he got caught up with work. And Micah as well got caught up with work. Am I the only one who dished my work to come record today? <laughs> anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go to record today. Okay, no problem. Oh, I'm missing someone. MCJB. You know, I mean, shout out to him. No internet connection for him to connect today. Catch him next next week. Hopefully, he's back in the States. You know what I mean? Um, this episode is sponsored by SITM Podcast. Follow them too. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. Um, SITM had a podcast with Fitzgerald too as well. That's video. We can check it out on YouTube if you have it. And um, yeah, we call our central podcast and we out it. Till next time. Bye. Smiles around the table, sharing this meal. I got a piece of mind when there's palm I get a piece of mine when it's by my